and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is J.D. Ross, co-founder of Open Door. The global stock of institutional-grade real estate is set to triple over the next 15 years, some estimates pegging aggregate values at $70 trillion. With this increase in asset volume, we're seeing large shifts in migration, distribution of construction, and influence of technology. Though there's significant macro change on the horizon, participating in the market today feels less than inspirational. Transacting is expensive, messy, and lacks transparency. Enter Opendoor. Opendoor brings machine learning and a thoughtful user experience to bear to dramatically simplify the end-to-end residential real estate transacting process. The company has raised $500 million over the past few years and has scaled to 1,000 plus employees in less than half a decade. JD and I dove into the story of the business, key lessons he's learned scaling so quickly, and his perspective on the future of real estate. JD, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So JD, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on today because you, know, you have a really unique story. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding Open Door. Yeah, sure. So um, I think my entrepreneurial journey started in college. I was uh, running a few profitable cash flow businesses. Uh, but the important point was that nobody else was. And so any student who was entrepreneurial would kind of inevitably reach out to me. And one of those, his name is Michael Carter. He'd started a nonprofit called Strive for College. And on his board was this guy, Joe Lonsdale. And he basically saved me from interning at Google by introducing me. And Joe made this like strong pitch about how you know, the world was in crisis. This is in 2009. The financial crisis is sort of midway. Um, and he said, you know, the world's in crisis. The financial system is totally screwed. Uh, I started this small company, Palantir. I'm leading it to start this more important one called Adapar. Um, you have to come save Western civilization with me. And I was, you know, enamored. I was like, of course, I'll be right there. Um, and so that summer I flew out to San Francisco for the first time and uh, worked with Joe on kind of the first non-founder at the company and eventually led a, uh, a large product organization there. And around 2010, uh, so the next year, my friend was interning at Square and Keith had just joined, Keith Rabway, my co-founder at Opendoor, just joined as COO. And I went to a party there that they had thrown. It was their first day where they had a million dollars of sales in the platform. Um, and if you know Square today, that's you know, ten, one, one ten thousandth of what they're doing. Um, and so I went to, um, to this party and we basically, I basically spent the entire time, uh, talking to Keith or I guess maybe arguing with Keith about fraud loss rates and other weird minutia, um, which I guess is how you become good friends with him because he tried to hire me <laughs> to run fraud at square, which I, I, I wisely declined that because I knew nothing about fraud outside of having strong opinions. Um, which actually allowed him to make a much smarter hire, uh, Ian Wong, my other future Open Door co-founder. But, but Keith and I became close friends, and we started talking about real estate and what would eventually become Open Door. So he he'd been pitching this idea actually to my third and my third co-founder and the Open Door CEO Eric Wu. Uh, Keith had previously invested in his last company, and Eric is the one who ultimately convinced me that we could build something huge and impactful. And so that's sort of the hyper condensed version of how did I get to Silicon Valley and start the company. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story because I think a lot of that is a little bit by happenstance, a little bit by luck, um, and a little bit by intent, and and a story that's probably not as broadly uh, broadcasted. So thank, thanks for sharing that. And I, I want to you know before we jump into Open Door, um, let's let's set the stage a little bit by first you know touching on the state of real estate, right? The global you know stock of I think institutional grade real estate 
is set to is set to triple over the next you know 15 or so years with some estimates pegging global values at something to the tune of 70 trillion dollars and i think with this increase in asset volume there's also a slew of complexity and change on the horizon you see you know social migration changing the distribution of construction opportunities uh you know of course the changing nature of cities presents a, a wider range of risk and return um, and then technology, of course, is playing a deeper role in the way we rethink the physical world. Talk a little bit more, you know, about the state of real estate today and really just kind of at a at a meta conceptual level. How do you think of the space? Yeah, so I think I think there's two parts to this. First is around the world, things are very different than they are in the U.S. We're going to see around a billion people urbanizing into cities that largely don't exist yet over the next 50 to 100 years. And that's largely concentrated in Africa. And so there's obviously a huge opportunity there, um, but it's very, very different than the opportunities you'll see in the U.S. And you have companies like uh, Rendever in Africa, which is which are building entire cities, and they they built seven of them, I think, and counting already across the continent. And, and but you're not seeing you know city building companies really in the U.S. except for um, some small new startups like my friend Ryan's uh, company Cul de Sac, which hopefully you know does bring that to the U.S. But, but back in the U.S., I think you're seeing is a lot more of a focus on this broader topic I'll consider like cost of living. So a lot of the startups today, and I'll, I'll call cost of living, including things that are housing, transportation, healthcare, education. And, and I think within housing, we're starting to see innovation kind of up and down that stack. So in construction, you have companies like Built Robotics, they're, which is making its coolest tech demo I've ever seen. They're building autonomous bulldozers that just grade and level plots, you know, cheaply and without any safety concerns and it's more accurate. And then you have companies like Mighty Buildings, which Keith has talked about, which is innovating on materials and kind of 3D printing of small buildings and accessory dwelling units. And then up the stack even further, you have companies like Vert and Social Construct that are innovating on the manufacturing and construction process itself, which I think of as sort of like bringing IKEA to construction. Um, and then, of course, there's like the more famous ones like Atera, which may eventually figure out their model. It's interesting because, uh, you know, you you kind of you paint the, the you paint the full stack and you talk about kind of innovation that's happening in the market. But it's it's interesting because where my mind kind of quickly goes is you have these very large kind of conceptual changes that are happening, um, but participating in the market today, right, is is still kind of broken and, and left in the 1900s, right? You've got this world that's very quickly changing, but the transacting process itself is still really expensive. It's messy and it it doesn't have that much transparency. Yeah. So today when you're buying or selling a home in the U.S., it's a total mess. So you know, it takes about 90 days of cleaning your house and staging it and doing these home showings where people kind of run in and out. Uh, you have all these complicated ideas like title insurance and mortgages and home inspections and broken foundation and all this stuff that kind of comes up and no one really understands how to do any of it. And so you need these two agents, one on each side to kind of act as your experts. And those people are expensive. And so when it comes to this open this ownership and transaction piece, you sort of have a, there's a lot of room to make it better, and that's sort of where Open Door uh, comes in. It says, you know, we don't need to worry about or think about any of that anymore. Yeah. So talk about talk about Open Door a little bit, right? Uh, and you know, our our listeners are are well familiar with Open Door being kind of a famed unicorn and a, and a great story out of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, having raised over well over five hundred million dollars with with the likes of folks like SoftBank, Coastal Ventures, et cetera. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, just what Open Door is. Give us the brief on that and, and how it works. Yeah. So by way of background, I co-founded Open Door five years ago and I actually left last month. Um, but Open Open Door allows you to skip kind of all of the hassle and headache of buying or selling a home. So if you own a home, 
Opendoor allows you to get an instant full value cash offer on your house. You can visit homes you might want to buy on your schedule without needing an agent because you can just unlock any of the homes with you know the Opendoor app, uh, no scheduling necessary. And ultimately, you can trade in your home like you might trade in a car. And so that, that's what Opendoor does today. And I think over the next few years, all the kind of adjacent services around that are going to get a lot cheaper and easier for consumers. Um, I think for by example, you can look to what Amazon has done to where other companies like Amazon have done to the home security industry with kind of ring and drop cam. I see no reason why like mortgages, title insurance, escrow home insurance should be nearly as expensive or complicated to obtain or understand. And yeah, at a fundamental level, I think we're going to make that we're going to remove all that complexity. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think home buying itself is a interesting kind of toehold or entry point into that full stack, and and we'll talk about that a little bit too because uh, you know I, I have some questions or thoughts on that a little bit later in the conversation. But before we jump into that, I think one of the one of the things that strikes me the most, even in just hearing your description of Open Door, is how at a fundamental level you take an incredibly complex process an idea, right, which is buying a house, right, which anybody listening to this that's ever been through any kind of major property purchase in their life knows it's a, you know, it's one of probably the most material transactions they'll ever do. There's tons of service providers. There's all sorts of documents. Um, and you guys boil it down to something so simple, right? And I, I think the best products are the ones that do this, which is, you know, if you think of an Uber, a Lyft, an Airbnb, they simplify the process so much on, on the front end side, but it's, you know, an incredibly sophisticated, complex process on the back end. Um, you know, what I'm interested to kind of dig into, J.D., are, are some of the underlying advances in technology itself, you know, that make this possible and, and how the company has practically been able to use them. Yeah, so I think uh, Keith has said that kind of every great company is predicated on a secret and that open doors is that you can value most homes in the U.S. extremely accurately without having to see them. Um, and, and so the, like, sort of the next piece underneath that is the, is the machine learning, which is that um, kind of Ian and his team that he's pulled together have be- created the most accurate model for not just pricing what a home will sell for, but also forecasting how, you know, what people might accept, what someone will, what the likelihood of someone buying a house might be to make an offer for, what price they might do, what, what you should initially price at and how you should do price drops. And so all this machine learning kind of on the back end to make this more and more efficient so that you can get a home onto the market and off the market faster. Um, I think another major technological shift that is still underappreciated, even though it's the most obvious one in the last 20 years, is that everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket now and is comfortable transacting financially with it. Um, So they do banking online, they shop for cars online, but they haven't really brought that to homes yet. And so I think the combination of sort of new technology plus adoption plus trust has enabled, has kind of set the stage for a company like Opendoor to now exist, where you can take the largest transaction of someone's life and they feel comfortable doing it without needing to necessarily talk to a person or see them in person. Yeah. So once you build, once you build that kind of trust level, you have you know the supercomputer in everybody's pocket. It's still the case though that if you look at a traditional transacting process, it's pretty ad ad hoc and a, and a one off experience, right? Both with the service providers, as well as just transparency of the process. But in the case of Open Door, you know, as in any strong marketplace business, it's a lot of it is about building liquidity on the platform, right? Simultaneously kind of getting more buyers and more sellers. Talk about, you know, the flywheel effect a bit more because I, I think the nuance of how a flywheel works in Open Door would be a little bit different than, you know, kind of a traditional on Amazon and Uber, et cetera. 
Yeah. So I, I think what kind of still is lost on a lot of people is that buyers and sellers are usually the same people. Uh, most people are moving. They're not necessarily buying or selling. And so you're either able to move or you aren't. And Open Door's mission is to empower everyone with the freedom to move because we, we realize that when people know that they can sell a home, they often will. Um, and so our, we actually think that Open Door is increasing liquidity in the marketplace. We're, we're getting people who otherwise wouldn't have moved yet or may have taken a lot longer, maybe never done it, done it at all, to take that first step and say, oh, actually, it's great. Uh, this is a price where I can move. I can now do this thing I wanted to do. I can move to this new city. I can move closer to my kids. I can uh, upsize or downsize in a way I didn't know I could. Yeah, the fl- the flywheel effect kind of at scale is interesting too. This the kind of nuance of you know buyers and sellers being the same folks because I, I think the flywheel effect at scale gives a pretty big moat right for a marketplace business. But if you if you break down successful marketplace businesses, a lot of it ends up pairing to a combination of frequency of transaction and then value of that transaction. So. What I mean by that is you can have something successful like an Uber or an Airbnb where transactions are pretty frequent and there isn't, you know, a dependency on the same provider. You know, but in other businesses and, you know, HomeJoy or, you know, some of the kind of home cleaning marketplace businesses come to mind. Um, those types of businesses could never really crack the marketplace kind of sustenance issue. There was always platform leakage. Sure. Uh, in, in large part because you could develop a relationship on the side and move off the platform. So in your case, you know, transaction frequency is a rel- is you know is is not highly regular, right? It's obviously not like an Uber. You're not selling homes every single day, but it's it's highly valuable, right? So there's kind of interesting nuances of how the relationship or the nature of the transaction itself is different. How do you you know in your kind of time at Open Door and, and conceptually kind of when you guys were thinking through the the problem, how did you think about kind of this idea of marketplace sustenance, you know, platform leakage and, and make sure you push more in the direction of, and again, I'm going to use Uber just as kind of a successful store, even though it's, it's a different type of business, you know, versus kind of a home joy or the, you know, the other kind of non-successful marketplace businesses. Yeah. I, I can't speak as open door. I can only speak for myself. So I'll kind of go broadly to the home market and then narrow it on to how I think about it at open door. Um, so for like, I think every, it's very important in every company that you own your customer relationship uh, you need to own the customer relationship. And I think this is like a major risk for companies like Compass who, for example, they uh, basically acquire, the way Compass works is they basically acquire brokerages and agents and bring them on. But ultimately the agent is the one who owns the relationship to, the, to their customers. And so if those agents ever decide to leave Compass for whatever reason, maybe someone just offers them slightly more money or the deal just doesn't isn't as, as good for them anymore and it becomes a race to the bottom because that agent can leave and take all their customers with them. And so I think that was a big problem with HomeJoy is that they didn't, while they in theory owned the relationship with the customer, in practice, the person who cleans the house actually owns the relationship with the customer. And so with Open Door, we actually own our, we all of our, you know, over 90% of our customers are relationships we built directly through direct acquisition. I think that's really important. Um, and I think talking about the transaction frequency piece for a company like Open Door, each individual customer isn't um, isn't likely to transact again for at least a while, right? Number of years, but that doesn't mean they don't drive business in the short term. So you can talk to any real estate agent, and they tell you kind of referrals or word of mouth are just massive drivers of their business. Because when you help someone with the largest transaction of their life, they just tell everyone. They become these massive evangelists. And so it's really important to us that we just do that really well. And that's the first piece. The second is that we actually have this more natural flywheel at Open Door where we actually buy the home and list it for sale. 
And while it's listed, that home becomes sort of a tiny billboard for a few months with dozens of people who kind of visit that home considering it for purchase, but they're also potentially selling the home. And so they could potentially become a customer. And so the dynamics of the business aren't really one-off like a car dealership, nor are they really repeat like e-commerce. They're sort of in the middle. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I want to jump into that kind of picking up the picking up the house kind of piece, right? You guys are, you know, you're picking up tons of housing inventory, obviously, that's the nature of the business. And, and, and I'm curious, kind of through the hyperscale years, how you thought about managing it, right? On, on one hand, it's a ton of risk, right? Managing a balancing sheet, balance sheet of a, of a boatload of property through kind of housing cycles. But on the other hand, you know, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier in the conversation, you're you're kind of you're building the best data set in the world, right? And you're in a pretty advantageous position at scale to price most accurately. So I'm I'm curious kind of how from from the founding of the company even to, you know, up until last year when you were involved uh, when you were involved kind of in day to day, how you thought about balancing pretty aggressive acquisition with, you know, on one hand with prudent risk management on the other. Yeah, and I, I can't speak to Open Door's strategy specifically anymore. You know, they have brilliant people like Dave Sinsky and Rajiv now running various, you know, risk and pricing teams there. But I'll say more at a macro level, real estate doesn't move like the stock market. So in, in 2008, you know, you might have a 10% drop in a day of, you know, a, a sector. Uh, in, in real estate, even in 2008, the worst real estate market of all time, it took three to four months to drop 10% in the worst single market, which was Vegas. And across 10 markets, those worst three-month drop is around 3%. And so for companies like Opendoor who own homes for just a few months, they don't really have the kind of exposure uh, as like a real estate investor would or a mortgage lender would. And they're close to kind of extend the, mar- the stock market metaphor. That we're kind of closer to like a, a market maker where we have to make sure we understand what the bid-ask spread is and we have to understand what liquidity looks like. But we don't need to kind of predict the future in that kind of big macro long-term way. At a micro level, we... we we do have to understand things very well, right? You have to understand, hey, is this zip code directionally going really hot right now or is it not? Uh, are there people buying here or are there not? And so it's important to understand the, the kind of micro level. Are you actually doing well in all conditions and all zip codes you're active in? But in a, you don't need to be this macro forecasting genius. I want to jump back to kind of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, which was kind of this idea of using the the transaction itself as an as an entry point to services up and down the stack. And and I see a couple of layers, right? And I'm I'm sure you see others. So I'd love to get your perspective. For me, you know, when I think about kind of the business from the outside in, the first layer is this idea of you know what other pieces in the actual transaction process can you cover? So you named a couple of them, right? Mortgages, title management, escrow, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, the more seamless this becomes in the platform, uh, I think the more valuable service you provide. But then layer two is kind of that whole litany of additional services that go outside of the immediate transaction. So ongoing home maintenance, right, supplier networks, et cetera. Um, you know, talk a little bit more kind of about, about the different layers and, and how you guys thought through that kind of in the growth and the evolution, at least historically, of, of Open Door. Yeah, I, I think for the bigger pieces like mortgage and title, um, yeah. Maybe Zillow bought a mortgage broker. Redfin's done title and escrow mortgages. Uh, Open Door does all of the above, plus you know things like home inspections and has a whole vendor network for renovations and repairs. I, I think the the business's economics and the iBuyer space are just driving everyone to vertically integrate, and it's happening because once you have a customer, you can provide these services you know better, faster, cheaper than if they're all unbundled and everyone is basically competing in marketing dollars to try and acquire that same customer again. 
And so it's a win-win both for the companies and also customers who get these costs handed back to them in savings. And I, I see that kind of continue, that trend just continuing forward. So one of the things I've noticed kind of in the space recently is, you know, the Zillow's, the Redfin's, et cetera, starting to proclaim at least publicly this kind of idea of buying homes and such. And, and one of the things I'm always kind of most fascinated by is when, you know, legacy businesses or incumbent businesses, not necessarily pivot, but try to go into a new space that's getting a lot of heat from true pure play startups. And one of the things I'm kind of curious about is when you kind of take the Clay Christensen's kind of disruptive innovation and, and how incumbents potentially struggle um, and why there's room for startups in certain markets. That I'm curious on your perspective of, uh, you know, incumbents and kind of legacy providers as they try to move to vertically integrate. What are the what are the kinds of challenges you foresee, you know, for those types of businesses to come into this type of space versus an open door where, you know, from the ground up, you've built a business uh, you know, you've built a business around acquiring homes. Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to answer that. The, the first is that Zillow is a company that has 90-something percent gross margins as a media business, right? And they're coming into the space, which is a single, you know, digit margin business uh, where you eat basis points or hundredths of a percent of a, mar- you know, a hundred, one hundredth of a percent of margin for breakfast. Uh, they're going to struggle, I think, with that culture change at the very least. Um, I think at a kind of, again, like zooming out with the exception of Netscape, I don't think there's a single company that has ever come in to fight off a disruptor and won. Um, Hmm. That's not to say that they haven't continued to succeed as businesses, but they've never killed the business. So that'd be extremely disappointing for Opendoor if we, if that happened. (laughs) (laughs) We'll, We'll talk a little bit more about, you know, you tweeted this, I think, you know, maybe last week or the week before, I, I, I thought this was super fascinating and, and really actually, frankly, kind of inspiring. Talk a little bit more about this kind of idea of building a business on top of Open Door. So you, you know, just for context, kind of for our listeners, you tweeted about a woman named Heather who applied to work at Open Door to, you know, to clean toilets for, for some of the homes you guys were buying. Um, and, and fast forward, and, and she's kind of created, an, she's had an interesting journey where you know, she's managed something to the tune of about 40, 50 people uh, and scaled her own kind of local cleaning, uh, home maintenance type business um, through, uh, you know, through work on the platform. I thought it was a really powerful example of what a platform play, you know, could do for local business creation. Talk, talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I think this is, um, I think broadly this kind of speaks to the power of technology to kind of lower the cost of doing business and enabling people who have all these different skills coming from different backgrounds, maybe all over the world, to kind of bringing opportunities to them so they can actually just deliver that better um, to more people. And so you're seeing this, I mean, Square is a great example of this as well, where they make it easier to start a small business or a freelancing company. You have Stripe on the internet. You know, their mission is to uh, increase the GDP of the internet, which is basically speaks very directly to this. At Open Door, obviously, we now have hundreds or thousands of vendors and contractors who are building their entire businesses and their livelihoods off of the business that Open Door creates um, and the work the team at Open Door does every day. And that's pretty amazing. Um, obviously, Uber and Airbnb have their own stories around this as well. And I, I think this is this is what a good business looks like. Business done well enables other business and enables the economy to hum and makes people pretty happy. And I don't want to sound too cheesy about it, but I think that that's ultimately what we should, we should be striving for through technology is to create 
leverage for everyone else. No, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And I actually think a lot of the kind of positive stories around passive income or mobility or flexibility you hear from some of these kind of iconic marketplace businesses like an Uber and Airbnb, I'm sure we'll hear more from Open Door, are um, are really great because of the opportunity set, frankly, it gives to a lot of people. And and I think in, in enabling that, a lot of that comes from um, you know, kind of managing the organization in in a right way, and I, and I want to switch a little bit to operating the company, operating the company a bit more, and kind of the thought process there. I'll start off with a question on kind of product insights. I think you know more and more you're you're seeing this drive kind of in 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 all industries, but it's this idea of taking right complex processes and using technology to create kind of a clean consumer experience on top. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about that idea and how it's historically permeated through the product organization at Open Door, um, especially because of, of your product background. Uh, but I also wanna talk a little bit about the challenge of creating a product which intertwines software and, and the physical world. Yeah, I, I think honestly, a lot of this just comes down to bringing together the right DNA. Um, and for us, that meant early on with that technical founding team we had, you know, Eric, Ian, myself, uh, we, we had to bring in brilliant people like Ryan Johnson, Megan Meyer, uh, Evan Moore to kind of bring that operating background and really drive that operations uh, mentality while still having really strong technical skills. So Evan had previously founded DoorDash, another very, you know, technology company with heavy operations. Uh, Megan and Ryan had both been at Bain Capital, which sounds private equity, but they were on the operations side, actually helping these businesses operate and had a really strong mindset for that. And so bringing in really strong DNA in each of the areas you're deficient, um, you know, for us, like capital markets is obviously hugely important in open door because we need to buy billions of dollars of homes. Uh, none of us had that skill set, but Troy and Dodd did, right? And so bringing the, the right talent in early that has the right culture that fits that enables you to kind of leverage all these different strengths while not also having an ego around, oh, this is a engineering company, or this is a data science company, or this is an operations company or a finance company. It's just a, it's a customer company. Um, and I think that actually set us up for success is because this business is so complicated and because we needed strong people in so many different positions, it enabled us to do this business. That was both a company that needed to cut through the clutter and re-explain a whole new industry in simpler terms, but I also had this very complex physical world challenge. So it's, it's interesting the way you kind of frame that, because I, I think one of the things I'm hearing is, you know, having a really good emphasis around talent and hiring the right people. And I, I think there's kind of the latter portion of that question still, which is this idea of, you know, creating a product where you're intertwining software in the physical world. What were some of the lessons learned or the key challenges, at least in the early days of how you guys thought through how to meld those two together? Yeah, I think the, a lot of this comes back to sort of that Paul Graham, do things that don't scale. And so for us, it was, we built out the product experience that got customers first, and then we had to actually service it, those customers, right? And so we started just by hand manually. Uh, we had a early employee, David Barons, who kind of ran everything out of Phoenix, just figuring things out one by one. And then you have tech teams come in and try and create leverage for that. And so you had a lot of our engineering teams and most of our engineers today, I'd guess, are still focused on how do you actually create operational leverage? You have home operations for making sure that the homes are actually listed well and work well. You have pricing teams that make sure that we're pricing accurately at every stage of the transaction. You have uh, vendor management teams who handle everything from invoicing and you know proper pricing on and scoping and estimation, like all these little pieces that we had to kind of uncover 
eventually you just build technology for it. And to, to, to the extent that even now we have an inspection app internally that we use. So when we send people from the team out to inspect a home, there's sort of a, check, a standardized checklist with standardized uh, outcomes for each step. And that gives you tremendous leverage over time that compounds and enables you to take this, you know, operating business that seems from the surface like to be impossible to, to manage and it becomes a more of a playbook. It becomes more of a system. Yeah, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I had Keith Raboy on the show last year and we we exclusively kind of talked about hiring and operating and just listening to you and the way you're describing it, you know, I can kind of hear remnants of, of our conversation kind of in this conversation. And I'm, I'm sure obviously the two of you have had many of these offline um, yeah. one of the, I'm basically just a less intelligent Keith. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's not a, that's not a bad thing to aim for. Um, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, the thought to create the company's kind of major engineering hub, uh, outside of San Francisco and, and in Atlanta. And, you know, I, I think one of the thoughts on, on where I was going with this was talking a little bit more about kind of the operational sophistication to pull a business like this off. And I, I think you kind of answered that piece on how you guys are thinking through, but I think the move to Atlanta in some ways is 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 kind of like a it's a it's a classic contrarian move that I'm sure many in kind of the Silicon Valley ecosystem look at and kind of scratch their heads a little bit at. You know, I'm I'm a native Atlantan. I live here. I think there's tons of advantages in talent and infrastructure, you know, over here. Um, fair share of challenges like any other city. But kind of what inspired the move to Atlanta and, and what was that kind of what was the conversation and the thought process like? Atlanta is a great city. I think people who have never been there should really go. Um, we, we knew we wanted an uh, engineering hub near to our customers. And for us, we were, you know, our East Coast hub is based in Atlanta. There's a tremendous amount of talent in Atlanta, uh, both kind of at the college level and also the more senior levels. And I think Silicon Valley is just becoming ridiculously expensive for engineers to live. And so while the sort of the traditional advantage of building a company in Silicon Valley is you have all this expertise of senior engineers who have seen it all and can just solve the problems plus these kind of upcoming junior engineers. I think that's starting to, that story is starting to fall apart as housing gets so expensive here. You can't really raise a family. You can't really have uh, the lifestyle that people necessarily want to have unless you're extremely rich in Silicon Valley. And so for us, it's, it just made a tremendous amount of sense to pick Atlanta because it was close to customers. We could have entire teams or entire projects based out of Atlanta um, with, you know, full mandates, uh, equal engineering team. There's no, you know, team one, team two. And it's, they've done a phenomenal job. So Atlee Brand leads the engineering team there. She's incredible. Uh, I, props to everyone there for building out a really strong team and proving that you don't need to be in San Francisco to have a really strong engineering team, engineering culture. Yeah, I, I actually... I kind of applaud the move in many ways because I think it's there is kind of a first mover advantage of being an interesting business that scales builds in Atlanta. And, you know, you have you mentioned at the college talent, uh, there's not many towns or, or cities in the country where you have the talent of, you know, 15,000 plus engineers from a from a caliber Georgia Tech coming out every single year. So, you know, kind of hoarding and concentrating a lot of that talent into your company is, I think, a long term competitive advantage. So JD, you know, this has been a this has been a super fun conversation, and and I'll kind of, you know, because of the lineage, as as you put it in your words, you you know, you're a less intelligent Keith. It'd be it'd be a disservice to kind of <laughs> without asking kind of the Peter Thiel question for and as applied to real estate, and that is, you know, what's one truth about kind of real estate that you believe that not many people agree with you about? 
So that, that's a great question. I can actually give you um, as a bonus here, converse, the answer I gave in a conversation to Peter Thiel himself, where I changed his mind, I think, on, on something in real estate. And he, he had alluded that he thought that NIMBYism was motivated kind of by financial greed, where people who lived in these kind of single family homes in San Francisco, uh, NIMBY meaning not in my backyard, people who are against development just wanted to see their home prices continue to appreciate. And, and I don't think it's actually motivated by greed at all. I think that's both logically incorrect and also uh, emotionally wrong. I think NIMBYism is mostly motivated by control. Um, and what I mean by that is that people who live in a neighborhood want that neighborhood to succeed and do well. Um, they want to say, and they, and they generally are okay with growth and development. And you can see this because in David Cameron's London, he actually approved a neighborhood bill that said anyone can basically declare themselves a neighborhood and control their own zoning. And they thought what would happen is that no one would then approve any new developments, but they did. They actually approved more new developments so long as it also came with concessions around things like more schools or better, you know, bigger roads or more parking or whatever it is. And so the, that local control piece is really important because no one wants to have a large building put up next to them that's, you know, this kind of cookie cutter box by a cheap developer. They, they want to have their neighborhood be grow and become better. Um, the logical inconsistency piece is that, that actually, as you do more development, home prices go up more, not less. And the reason that is, imagine putting a single family home on a tenth of an acre in the middle of Manhattan. It, it's not worth, you know, $20 million because uh, it's a really nice house. It's worth that because the land is really valuable. And as you develop more and more per unit, prices do go down, right? Uh, a 10, if you put up a 10, you, get, you know, put up 10 times more units of real estate, you will see much lower per unit, but the land value itself will actually continue to go up. And so it's actually financially bad for NIMBYs to uh, not approve more development around them. Very interesting. Well, JD, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. This has been a really interesting conversation. I, I definitely learned a lot about uh, real estate and kind of some of the some of the early thought processes behind Open Door. So, you know, glad you make the time. Glad you made the time, and you know, thanks so much for for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting this. This was great.